What a joy it is to be together, to uh, worship our King, to divide His Holy Word. Um, just love you, thankful for you. Today was a special day for our family. We got to see uh, one of our uh, former shepherds who pastored here, Bill and Mindy Mogzig and Luke and Levi are uh, getting a, a week of vacation away from uh, their now home in the West Bank of New Orleans. Uh, going to spend a week in Santa Barbara, so they're looking for a little California coast uh, for their summer vacay and worked out their schedule to be able to, to, to in the travel through, join us for first hour. So hopefully you got to say hello. And uh, I opened our, our first hour sermon uh, by just praying for them and for their church. And so I'd ask, like to ask you to do that with me today, that we would all be a part of that today. So will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for this day that you have made. I thank you for purposing us to be here, to be together, to be a united family, God, that, that loves you and longs to serve you joyfully, willingly. Lord, I thank you for um, our adopted brother and sister, Bill and Mindy, for their two sons and um, what they mean to us and um, their faithful service at our church in a very critical season in the life of our church. You used uh, Bill and Mindy and the boys um, in, in important ways um, to, to help us, to, to help us mature and honor you, um, uh, to uh, have a good grasp of the centrality of the gospel and um, just thankful for their years of uh, sacrifice and, and leading us well uh, uh, years ago. We thank you, Lord, for their new assignment in New Orleans and uh, a community that is desperate for the gospel, uh, that uh, they are taking on a, a task fit for them well to endure uh, different kinds of suffering and hardship in a community that um, is needing much reconciliation and restoration. Endure them, Lord. We pray for, for that flock, um, uh, your church, uh, there in, in NOLA and, and, and their meeting even this morning with the absence of their shepherd, that you would bless them this morning with the word, with worship, with, with community and communion, uh, that they would honor you, Lord, in preparing for the week of ministry you have before them. Lord, we thank you for our gospel partnership and for the ways you continue to work. Bless the Mogzigs with a restful week away. The grind of ministry um, is is truly that a, a grind but it, but it's a joy as well and i pray that you would you would just give them a chance to unplug from the daily responsibilities from from the burdens that they help carry for you and for your flock uh and and enjoy each other and get rest and get time in your word and get to see your creation your ocean and, um that they would come back rested for a new leg of the journey uh we thank you lord for our time together here today a chance to divide your word and and look to it humbly, joyfully, submissively, that it would shape us and mold us, that you would love us well and not allow us to leave here the same way we came in, that we would mature and grow and worship you all the more. We commit ourselves to you in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. If you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, we are in the middle of chapter 15, and we'll pick up at verse 12 today. Um, I love this chapter. I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in and through us as we study it together. Uh, this is our 63rd sermon in this gospel, and it um, proves to continue to bless us abundantly. Today's text is John 15, verse 12 through 17. As you'll see all read there, these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The word of our Lord. A little background, if you're just joining us, and reminder, if you've been walking with us in this journey, the Gospel of John is one of four testimonies in the Holy Scriptures of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. These Gospels are of the utmost importance to us because of who Jesus is. He is God the Son. An equal and eternal member of the Holy Triune Godhead that created all things, sustains all things, and for whom all things exist. He is the promised Redeemer for mankind's greatest problem, sin. Sin earns us God's righteous wrath and eternal death. Jesus is the one mankind has been waiting for. Without him, we are left to grasp only for temporary idols, idols of our hearts, things we hope will satisfy, things we hope will give us peace, things that are fleeting, constantly breaking down. Things that lead only ultimately to eternal suffering. John's gospel is of particular importance and is particularly very special in that it lifts high the deity of God the Son. It is rich with the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. But most importantly, it is a declaration of God through his servant John to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life-changing good news that is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what that means for us. John declares the very specific and game-changing reason for writing this gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe is the purpose. Not just believe about him, but believe into him, as we've seen time and time again. A belief that is life-changing. You die to yourself and trust your life to Jesus. You, as Paul would say, 
fully submit to him in all things. It is your joy for him to be your Lord and Savior. Belief into Jesus means you repent of any self-merit or self-reign, how you're in control of your own life, or self-efforts for self-salvation. You, you surrender those things. You turn from those things. And you give your life to Jesus and you rest on his merit, his reign and authority, and his victory over death for your salvation. John clarifies that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the promised one. He is the Son of God. Eternally, God the Son. God in flesh. The only one who's able to save us from our sin and set us free. And that by believing, we would have life in His name. New life. New birth. What is dead in sin is alive in Christ. As we believe into Him for salvation. Church, may your faith in Jesus be emboldened. May, may your trust in Jesus be absolute so that you know life, life in God, that you truly know hope, lasting hope, enduring hope, living hope, that you know real peace, true shalom, despite your circumstances. Not as the world gives it, but only as God gives it. If you have not yet believed, truly trusted Him. And, and church, I say this a lot. Because there might be some new to the church, new to the scriptures, but there also might be some who have been convinced that I'm good because of my religious devotion, my repetition of attendance. but that you would believe in Him in such a life-transforming way that all that you are is Christ. That you are dead and Christ reigns in you. May our identity, our purpose for living be Jesus and Jesus alone. Today we pick up in the middle of John chapter 15. The time is just hours away from His arrest, false trials, and death on the cross, and a substitute for his people. He has revealed to the eleven disciples that he is going to be physically leaving, that Peter, one of the key leaders, is going to betray him and deny him, and that Judas is the betrayer, that he is not a true disciple. In their reeling of this news, trying to capture the fullness of what it will mean to not have Jesus, their master, physically there, he spends the next two chapters of chapter 14 and now 15 emboldening their faith, reminding them of who they are in him, telling them of what they will do in their ministry and how that will work. And that's where we find ourselves. Jesus just finished looking at how and speaking of how he is the vine and we are the branches, we who are in Christ. 
and that we can only bear much fruit as we abide in Him in all things and thrive in Him and mature in our faith. So as we pick up now in verse 12, Jesus turns back to a very central command and clarity that the disciples and we, the church, must understand rightly and live out all of our days that He entrusts to us. With that, let's dig in. John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is not the first time that we've heard Jesus emphasize his commandment to love one another. We study this thoroughly in chapter 13, verse 34. Let me say that with you again. A new commandment I give you, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also are to love one another. Remember on that day I gave you the clarity that we, as we studied that verse, of why the commandments knew. Because the commandment to love and God and love others is central. It's been. It is, it is the moral law. It is the, the Decalogue. It's the, it is the Ten Commandments. It's the Great Commandment to love God and love others as ourself. So what's new about it? Well, the aim. The aim of, of this commandment is not for all people. It is for the church. The moral law of God is over all people, for all people. There are guidelines for life to honor God. But this commandment is for God's chosen people. Remember his audience is the eleven. It's the disciples. Judas is not there anymore. The false disciple has left. This is a commandment given to the church. It's one of the one another's. He says, to love one another. Just as you've experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ. Notice this is not the love your neighbor or love your enemies teachings that Jesus also gives that are to be obeyed and followed and lived out. Those have a different aim of application. Loving your enemies, loving your neighbors. This is specific. It's love one another. It's a love that God wants to be shown in and through the church, the universal church of our adopted brothers and sisters worldwide. The call is for the love of God to be made manifest in the life of Jesus Christ and to be displayed in the unity and the love and the bond of God's redeemed people. So how is it special to just the church? Well, First, because the love of God is made manifest in a special way in Jesus Christ. God in flesh means love came near in a special way that the disciples have experienced will continue to experience in their redemption. It is a love that those who deny Jesus are separated from Him and cannot experience. It is a love that is for one another. Jesus qualifies and clarifies this love to be a love that he has shown them. It is personal. It is the love of God made accessible through Jesus Christ and his 
perfect work. Don't ever forget, church, that God is the source of true love. Jesus qualifies and clarifies um, this again and again because it is so central and important for us to rightly understand. John, our author of this gospel, later in his letters brings some of the best clarity on this topic that the scriptures have, especially in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. John says there, Beloved, talking to the church, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What this means is that there is a true love that is found only in God and only by knowing God. And outside of God, you don't know that true love or are able to live it out. Hear John's plea, beloved. Let us love one another. This is the same thing Jesus is saying here in chapter 15 and what we saw in chapter 13. We are commanded to love one another. Our love, church, has to have feet. It can't just be something we say in passing. It needs to be felt. It can't just be a good idea or a lofty ideal. It has to be real. It has to be present. An unavoidable force. It's happening. If the church is going to do anything for God's fame, Jesus is central again and again that we must be about love. His love and His love for one another. It is simply not an option. Paul will later speak in 1 Corinthians 13 of the failure of the church if we do not live in God's love. Verse 1 through 3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, a quite cool and impressive thing, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, pretty cool, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. What feels very important now is nothing without love. I, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, pretty impressive, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is impossible for you and I to love without God. Why, you might ask? Well, John said it well. First John 4, 7, if, For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, new birth, and knows God, has a reconciled relationship with Him. Why? Because God is love. God is love. It's not just, it's not God was love. God will be love. God gave us love. No. Love is not just an action of God, it's who He is. It's, it's God's nature. One may think they know something about true love, 
or the affection that comes with love. But apart from the grace of God, apart from new birth, we know truly nothing about true love. Real love, divine love, is like God. It's holy, it's just, it's perfect. If you want to know true love in your life, you must know and be reconciled to God. How does one have and know the love of God? Well, John made it really clear in his next two verses, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. See how this connects to the testimony of John in the gospel. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, abiding in him, live through him. His love may manifest through us. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news that changes everything. And so maybe what you're sensing or realizing is, I don't know the kind of love this is talking about. Maybe all I know is a counterfeit love, a replica love that mankind has come up with. Mankind who is still separated from God. And that's why that love's constantly failing and why it's constantly hurting people and why it's so self-seeking. We must rightly see that to know real love is to know God. To know God, you must be spiritually awakened by God who will cause you to respond to that awakening with repentance from sin and utter submission to Jesus as Lord. Only in God do we know true love. Only out of the overflow of God does the church really, truly, genuinely love one another. Now notice Jesus says in John 15, 12, love one another as I have loved you. How has he loved us? Well, he says so in the next verse. Look with me. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Church, he died for us. Gave up his life for us so that we could be called friends. This is truly good news, especially when we really understand who we were to him in our sin, in our slavery of sin before our new birth. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, I think gives us a great and whole and succinct synopsis of our standing in our sin apart from regeneration in Christ. Looking back, it says, Romans 5, 6 through 11, for while we were still weak, speaking of our inability to save ourselves, making war with any kind of false gospel that say, hey, just, you've got to just get your life cleaned up enough and then you can earn it. No, we're weak. We're unable. 
while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly are people who are against what honors God. A true definition before new birth of us in sin. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. We're not quick to do it even for what we would call a good person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners... What's a sinner? A sinner is a practiced person who's disobedient to God's commands. We betray His glory in pursuit of our own. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If that weren't enough, he goes on in verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, his enemies, while I was his enemy, the Bible is clear that outside of new birth and life in Christ, we hate God. You might not wear a t-shirt about it. You might not have been part of a club or a social network. But your aim for everything you do apart from new birth is in sin. In that, its target is not God. It's tar- your target is something self-serving, something in creation. We long to be satisfied by the creation, not the creator. We do not pursue the creator in our slavery to sin. The Bible is clear. Proved to be his enemy. Proved to make a mockery of his glory. To pursue and seek out glory in man-made ways. So like the illustration I gave last week, I'll remind us again, it's not that the the trying Godhead said, man, these neighbors, this is some, you know, they're they're not great, they're not perfect, but man, they're some good people. Son's going to die for them. No. We're the neighbors that are actively, daily, in the way we live our lives, trying to burn his house down. And God says, I'm dying for that person. We were his enemy. Practiced, disobedient sinners. Weak and unable to save ourselves. This is the good news of God's amazing love in the last part of these verses, we were reconciled by God to the death, by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this life, by His life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We need not be shocked that God chose to save some, only some. 
we need be shocked and in awe that he chose to save any of us when we understand who we are in our sin. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said it rightly, that he who makes lightly of sin thinks lightly of the Savior. I pray we have a deep and right and full view of our sin apart from Jesus and a full and right view of the holiness and worthiness of God so that the gap in between is overwhelmingly only filled by the cross of Jesus Christ and there is no merit. There is no thought of my worthiness. There is no, I am desperate for Jesus alone. I am in awe that God would save such a person like me. And in this now, see and experience the Savior's love for you. See what he gave up for us. See the depth of his reach. Not only in his incarnation, the putting on of flesh, but in his sacrificial substitution, his death on the cross on our behalf. Take on our sin. Oh, I pray you see God's gracious love in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You see him laying down his life, a life that deserved all the glory and fame and respect and honor. He laid it down to love us. I pray you come to know this love so that then it can abide in you and move its way in and through you to genuinely love one another. What this means is we cannot have a right view of the depth of the love of God for us and then turn to each other with a shallow, passive, cost me very little, flippant love for each other. No, we must love like he loved us with a total sacrifice kind of love. Hear it again, church. John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. Do we really love each other in the body of Christ this way? We might understand and approve of a soldier in our armed forces laying down his or her life for another soldier in our armed forces. Seeing the battle before them, the commitment they've made, camaraderie they have, and not think too much about it, state tragedy of it and the reality of the families and the, what that means, but receive it. Okay, I get it. But why is it If a brother or sister in our flock were to lay down his or her life for another brother or sister in our flock, 
knowing those families, the children, the, the impact on our church, that we might stop and go, what? but was that the right thing to do? Look at the cost. Look at the fallout. And I wonder if we really get what Jesus is calling us to among us like we should. As we contemplate this, as you consider the depth of this, do not forget that this is a commandment from our Master. We've received orders that are on such a greater scale than any armed forces orders that have ever been given. And I think we pause at this level of love being right and good and the right thing because even though we say our jobs and our stuff and our blood families, husbands and wives and children and grandchildren and sisters and brothers, are not as, we say they're not as important to us as God is. Maybe when it comes down to it, that's not true. Maybe our selfishness still reigns more than my devotion to my master and his command on my life. We struggle with selfishness, it's real. I don't know why, I don't know why. Scott pointed out the other day. I uh, I just have this idea in my mind that I'm just not going to live a long life. And maybe it's just my way of trying to really live today and if he gives me tomorrow then I'll live tomorrow. But but what if you heard today this morning it was announced that I died for someone who at a horizontal view you might consider as unworthy. Your mind's thinking about, oh, we're just getting started. We're about to build the campus. Josh just warming up in his pastoral career. Look, look what God's doing in our church. We think about all, the, all of what that means for us. I, did, I want you to see or, or, or think about yourself and, and then if you were gone, what that would mean for your family, your spouse, your kids. We have to release our selfish grip to say, I want it my way. And, and if we've given our lives to the Lord, then they're His. And we love to this degree. And we don't second guess it. Maybe, maybe we're not taking seriously enough the commands of our Lord to love others with a sacrificial cost. You everything kind of love. 
There's a reason why Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, every time you hear them, I hope they do for you what they do for me, in that they kind of wreck me because they reveal to me how much growth I still need to have in the Lord Jesus. They remind me how pure and perfect God's love is and how much I'm still at war with my flesh. Let them wash over you this morning. Let conviction do its work and move us to a greater degree of sacrificial love for this is what these words paint. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-6 through six. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, and always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. True love is selfless and sacrificial, which means you love them even when it's really hard. The definition of sacrifice, church, is that it costs you something. If you're trying to love one another with what you have available, that doesn't cost you something. It's what's available. Oh, this is this is on this is extra. I can get oh no problem. Here you go. Sacrificial love costs you something. You're giving something up. It costs you something you love something you care about, to love that way. So we see the beautiful way that Jesus did this for us. He died for us. He gave up his flesh for us when we were his enemies. And it's bigger than the beating he took. That's the minuscule part of what he did on the cross. He took on all the wrath our sin deserved. When I did nothing to earn him to do that, I hated him. But there's another cost we must consider. I think if, if you leave just convinced, convicted, I need to do a, a more sacrificial job of loving one another with my time or my money or my schedule although good, I would say that the biggest war we probably have to be ready to do business with is the cost of relationship. Because there are many ways where I don't love you sacrificially because my selfishness doesn't want to lose you. So I don't really love you in truth. I love you with lies. I stay away from hard topics. I don't lean in. 
because I kind of like you in my life, and, and this truth, this accountability, this, this love that's needed might cause separation, division, struggle. And I'm unwilling to sacrifice that. I've seen this in love relationships. I, in all my years of doing youth ministry, I told the teens all the time, I'm not worried about drugs for you. I'm not worried about all these other things that, that could scoop you up and mess your life up. You know what I'm worried most about for you and your faith walk with God? A relationship. Because it is so potent that when wrongly cling to I've watched too many who claim Jesus essentially deny or walk away from obeying him to have a relationship that is the biggest thing that they really wanted. To live in sin, to live in compromise, to make it your everything. Or to not do what's needed to be done. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine means love, let love be without hypocrisy. So let me love you genuinely. That means I'm true to who I really am at my core. And if I'm alive in Christ, I'm true to Christ. I don't set that aside to love you in a different way, a, a hypocritical way, a fake way, a, a half way. Love is genuine it's authentic it's honest and to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good means it's not loving to not abhor what is evil it is not love genuine love to watch someone you claim to love struggle in sin and out of fear of the loss of or the fracture or the challenge in that relationship you don't speak to it The thinking is, all he, she, they'll figure it out. I, man, if I step into it, it's going to make it messy. I'm the one voice of God in their life. If I mess that up, then, you know, God needs me to do this, so can't, can't go there. I don't want to cause conflict. Or you're just motivated by a self-love because you want them to love you. You don't like the idea of them being upset or the apple cart getting turned over. We are to love them genuinely. Even if it's really hard. Even when it costs us something. Even if it maybe cost us that relationship for a time or forever. Because to not go there, to not speak truth, to not love them genuinely is to not love them. It's to love yourself and what you get out of it. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good means our love should cause us to fight for that. It means this church and this church, we're not going to be distant from each other. We're not going to be hypocritical. We're going to act in genuine love. We're going to walk by faith and not by sight. We're going to need to sit down and have some conversations where we look at someone and say, I love you. And I'm really concerned that what you're pursuing or what this is is out of step with the gospel. It's not, it's not in God's word. And so 
Will you look there with me? Will you see? Will you repent? Turn from that. Grow. I'm not loving you to just stay back and just hope you're going to figure it out. Say, I'm praying for you. God's put me in your life to be your family. And And let me say, it's as hard as it is to have those conversations, let me also mention that you likely will be on the receiving end of those conversations. I know I have been and will continue to be. Love me enough to say what I need to hear to, to, or maybe in humble humility or, or respect of who I am as your shepherd, go, Pastor, can we at least look to the Word together because I'm struggling with this. Yeah, okay. Love my kids enough to love them genuinely. I got to talk about Pastor Bill and I's uh, children and, and how many times pastor's kids end up really weird. And there's, there's a reason for that. It's the church's fault. Let me tell you why. Because you want to be liked by the pastor's kids. And so you don't love them genuinely. You tell them what they want to hear. You let them become tyrants you let them get away with stuff that you don't let Susie or Tommy get away with don't do that I tell our children's ministry workers probably not often enough if anything love my kids be harder on my kids don't let them let's work together to not let them turn into that kind of kid because we all kind of let them rule the roost because you don't want to make the pastor's kids up you know what I mean like no love them genuinely Love them when they need to be disciplined. Speak truth. Tell us. Your kid's out of line. Thank you. I love you. Let's partner in helping them get in line. I pray we truly and fully love one another and don't back away for fear or for self-serving reasons. We walk by faith and not by sight. I promise you, if you'll do this with each other, you will become closer and less sin reigns. If sin abounds in one of the two parties or in both, it goes really bad. Because you don't want to humble yourself. You want to be prideful. No, you're wrong. I'm right. I don't, I don't want to look to the word with you. I, you know, Sin causes us to pull back, make excuses. I'm not willing to go there. I don't want to hear that from you. No, no, love... So when you get to those conversations, lean in and go, I know you love me. So there's something here I've got to hear. Or let's look to the word. Let's bring in another brother if we need to. Another sister. And when I've seen the church love each other like this, get out of the way, world. You can't break up the bond that you have together when it happens like that. We'll be so close. Look with me now at the end of the verse, verse 13. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friendship was very important in the Greco-Roman culture that this was stated in. Loyalty and devotion to a friend really meant something then, maybe more than it means in a modern day era, where, where we're so quick to just walk away or just let it go. For the sake of understanding Jesus' words, we must now ask, 
who are Jesus' friends. He gives the example of what sacrificial love looks like to lay down one's life for his friends. Who are Jesus' friends? Well, he answers that in the next verse, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, let's be really clear here to not promote a false gospel. You do not become Jesus' friend by obeying his commands. That's not what he just said. That would be a works-based, earn-it gospel. That's a false gospel. And it would not be good news at all. He's saying the evidence of those who are my friends is their obedience to my commands. What a marvelous and joyous reality it is to be called by Jesus' friend. To be one who is now able to obey his commands because of new birth, because of his gracious intervention, regeneration in my life. Just as Jesus was emphasized time and time again, those who truly love him, who truly believe in him, those who are his true disciples, his sheep who listen to his voice, are the ones who prove by their lasting obedience and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Prove themselves. It's the evidence of. And we've saw, seen many examples of those who proved to not be among true disciples or true sheep because they walk away. They, they're, they're in it for self-serving things. And when it comes down to it, Jesus is not the Lord of their life. They're still the Lord of their own life. A few weeks ago, I had emphasized that we would not slip into antinomianism, which is an anti-law. A worldview that begins to view the Lord's commandments as not needed or a bad thing. It's only grace for all of it. And we can just kind of, we don't need to worry about any of the commandments of the Lord anymore. No, it is good and right to be faithful in obedience to our Lord. We do not earn our salvation, but in our salvation we walk in obedience. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants. He doesn't call us servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Understand that because Jesus calls the disciples friends and no longer calls them servants, he does not mean that they do not serve him any longer as master. Like you've graduated. You're no longer a servant. Now you're a buddy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I refer to you. I call you friend. What he means in this and the clarity he's bringing in chapter in verse 15 is they do not serve him out of sole obligation, but instead out of true union and bond. There's a relationship there now. It's not obligatory wooden service like a hired hand who has no relationship with the boss. No, he said, we have an intimate relationship call you friend 
I tell you what the Father's told me about these truths, these things, and what we're going to do. We must have a right view of what it means to serve Jesus as our Master. The apostles never saw being a servant of Jesus, Jesus as their Master, as a negative. It was actually the exact opposite. It was a joy, an utter privilege to dedicate their life to serving the master, to be slaves of the master. We know that they're not done serving him, nor are we, because because he calls them friends. We know that's not the case, because in the coming verses, he's going to highlight that he's chosen us to go, to serve him, to put on display, to, to work for him. But before we get to that, the joyous attitude and priority it was for the apostles to serve Jesus as master is all throughout their writings. And for the sake of time, I can't go into it, but let me just point out one, and it's one we've seen recently. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul introduces him and Timothy as what? Servants of Christ Jesus. He's writing to the church of Philippi, introducing himself, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word there, that's the English word. The Greek word that Paul wrote is doulos, slave. Church in Philippi, I'm writing you, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. He, he doesn't say, I'm a friend of Jesus. He could have said that. But he doesn't say it like he's bragging. You know what I mean? Like when you meet someone famous, maybe you have like a three-minute conversation. Are you guilty of this? I've been called on this. And you're like, oh yeah, I know, I know, I know that guy. And you like had like two-sentence conversation with him. He doesn't know you from anyone. But you remember because it's famous or she because she's famous, right? And you kind of claim like, oh yeah, we're good. Right? Paul, Paul's not about that. But notice this with me. Man, this really blessed me. The thing he wants to highlight to the church in Philippi in this example, and we see it all throughout the scriptures, the one thing he wants to speak about his relationship to Jesus is what? That is his privilege to be a joyful slave of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to tell them about who he is. Now that doesn't make sense to you if what you're thinking about is like modern day slave trade or, you know, no, no, no. Don't think of it that way. The slave industry, no, no. He means it like John the Baptist meant it. John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man ever to be born of woman. John got devotion to jesus his whole life from the womb is about jesus and what he say in john the gospel of john chapter 1 verse 27 it testifies he this is john the baptist speaking about jesus he jesus is the one who comes after me and what does john want to say about this relationship the thongs of whose sandals i am not worthy to untie the lowest slave job the dirtiest, filthiest, you are on the bottom of the totem pole duty. 
to hold the filthy sandals of those guys' shoes at the door. I'm not worthy to hold his dirty shoes at the door. I'm not worthy of that, meaning I'm lower than that, meaning it is my joy to be that humbly submissive to him as my master. I would not, he, that's what he wants to press out and make known and make understood how he sees the beauty of that relationship to get to serve Jesus as Lord. And it's not outside of him that he, he also understands the relationship. In John 3, if you remember, he speaks of the joy it is to be a friend of the bridegroom. So he gets that part too, that that's not outside these guys. But what they want to talk about is that, oh, it is my honor to serve the king with my life, with my everything. And this is made clear in the fact that the Bible uses many terms to describe us, the church, the followers of Jesus, Christians. Terms like the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, beloved, the chosen, the church, disciples, the elect, heirs, saints, sheep, sons of God, friends, and more. But all of those terms for us are trumped in the New Testament by one term. And that's the term slave. I pray that you would have a right view of that, an affection for it, like the apostles did, and not a wrong view of it in a way that you almost don't know how to like get your arms around it. In no way is Jesus dismissing the reality of our joyful submission to him as Lord as he calls us friends. And to confirm this, we need, no, we, we need go no further than back one verse where he says, my friends, how do you know you're my friend? You obey my commandments. And this is just another way that he is going low to bring us all the way into his kingdom, a thriving relationship with him. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from the Father I've made known to you. He doesn't have to do this, but he chooses to do it. Chooses to give this to the disciples. Why? Because he loves them. He loves us. He wants us to know him and and the ways that that he reveals. He doesn't want us to be strangers. He wants us to be close. Family. He's gracious enough to call us friend. He's going to keep things in perspective in the final verses here. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. A great verse. I'm going to stop there. I'll finish the verse in a moment. Jesus brings clarity here saying, Even though I have shown you great grace and mercy and kindness, I have not treated you as an obligatory slave, but a slave who is family, who I call friend, I love you enough to remind you, and trust me, this is a reminder we need all the time. He's reminding us, I'm still the authority though. Don't let it get to your head that I just called you friend. And I don't know about you, I need that reminder. Why? Because I'm really good at thinking a little too highly of myself in my flesh. I need to have a right view. And so he does that. He blesses them with this, and I think it's a blessing for us. Hey, just remember how you got here. You didn't choose to be here. You did nothing to earn this. I chose you. 
In our fight against sin, we love to give ourselves more authority than we really have, especially, I think, when it comes to God. We're guilty of speaking to, to God as if somehow he's in our debt. We put a lot of like good words around it. Oh, Lord, you're worthy, you're great, oh, you're awesome, and I love you. And by the way, you better do this. And, you know, we don't, we don't like get to it that way, but man, we're guilty of talking that way to him. We're guilty of putting him in our debt. We're guilty of thinking about how he should, the sovereign God, should do these things. Many I've run into along the way. The highlight, the glory of their salvation is not them talking about what God has done to set them free. Their testimony says, the highlight, if you really listen, I'm so thankful I finally got my act together and chose God instead of all that stinking sin that I was falling prey to all these years. Nonsense. And I pray for you. You still have a very lacking view of the depth and the beauty of the fact that you chose nothing. God chose you. Gave you saving faith. You responded because you're, you were reborn. You were made alive. Of course you said yes to the gospel. You went from being a corpse spiritually to alive. And you the beauty of it comes alive and you will say yes every time. That's, that's a praise God moment. Not a, guys, I did it. I did it. You're missing the point if you say I did it. We must see that we didn't choose him. We have scripture upon scripture to show us this. Back to chapter 1 of John, John 12, 13. But of all who did receive him, who believed in his name, how that happened, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave it. They were born, reborn, not of blood, not because of our lineage, nor of the will of the flesh. My flesh wants nothing to do with God. Praise God, it wasn't up to that. Nor of the will of man. Not my choice, his, but of God, it says. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, I chose you. And we see this in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, see his love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will not my will his will verse 11 according to the counsel of his will see this savor it oh you need this this morning don't miss it Jesus says you did not choose me I chose you that applies to the disciples and applies to all that he gives new birth he chose me. He chose me when I was nothing but against him. When I wanted nothing to do with him. He chose me when all I wanted was everything but him. What, what a wondrous reality to be chosen by God. Beloved, let the truth of your election by a sovereign God who's not obligated on any level to choose you, the almighty creator and sustainer, let it be an overarching truth that trumps the other realities that you might be facing in life in this time other realities that are hard other parts of this world that are attacking that are trying to cut your legs out from underneath you and tell you you're nothing or or, or get you to fall prey to sin the other things that are constantly coming at you correct them in your heart and mind with this overwhelming truth that god chose me 
these lies coming at me, the way sin wants to work at me. Let the words of Christ wash over you every day to experience His love, His choosing you. He doesn't love you because He had to, or because you loved Him, or because you did something to put Him in this position He didn't want to be. He chose you, He put His love on you because He willed to, alone. He's building on his statement in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now he's clarifying what that love looks like. He's called us friend. He lays down his life for us. He chooses us. That we may know his love and respond in joyful obedience to his command to love one another. Now watch how it finishes. See his purpose in this. Here's the rest of 16 and 17 to close. That you should go... I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. It's essentially a recap of everything he's told us now since verse 1. The purpose of our lives bearing much fruit as we abide in him and show him to be the source of our transformation and our new life. To make much of his name by doing the things he's called us to. Just see it with me real quick. Go. Go what? Go make much of his name. The fruit that we bear is not a look at what I've done. It's a look at what God has done in and through me. It's pointing to him. The abiding shows not our own strength, but our dependence on Him. The praying we do in Jesus' name, that clarity there is so key. It means He's choosing to use me as an instrument to do His will. He will do what we ask when I ask it in His name because that's what He's set out to do in me. It points to Him. And finally, our love for one another is how we prove to truly be His disciples. We get to put the gospel on display. We just say, look at my wretched life and look at what an amazing God has done in grace to set me free and make me a new person, a new man or woman in Him. Church, see the purpose of it is His glory. It is centrally about making much of His power and His glory. This is why we do what we do. It's not self-serving, it's God-serving. And it is our total privilege and joy to do so. And so I just call you as you contemplate how you respond to this this morning. I remind you again, this call to love one another and serve God and display fruit that He grows in us is not a recommendation, church. It, this is not something you might consider doing today. It is a commandment from the living God on our lives. And we love Him if we obey His commands. We prove to be His friends if we are the ones who do His commands. Oh, how good our God is and how joyful it is to be chosen by Him and to serve Him. Disciples Church, may we be true friends and truly love one another for His glory and His namesake. Pray with me. Lord, I thank You for for this text and this hour and this time, the, these 
this study of Jesus' words that we're so desperate for, these ways in which our flesh really struggles. It struggles to serve itself. It struggles to avoid what's hard. It struggles to make it about ourselves. Oh God, I pray that you would allow us to see the clarity of Jesus' words here today. It has abundantly blessed me. I pray it would for each man and woman who's here today as we go from this place as you ordain us with another minute or hour or day or week that we would look to obey this commandment. Look to make much of your name in these ways. As we contemplate the scandal of grace that you have shown, that you have done to set us free, that we would well up with authentic, genuine worship for you, not just in this song, but with our lives moving from this place. And so hear your people. Hear people come from slavery to sin to new life as they repent and believe. Hear the confessions of sin of your people and the turning to a new path. Hear us obey you and walk joyfully and willingly serving you the rest of our days. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.